We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much. So many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Welcome everybody back to Steve with another book review series, uh, the tale, a tale of two satires on, was it the Monsignor Robert Hugh Benson's books? Uh, this will be episode two, and what are we doing? The Dawn of All with Michael Graney, who curiously came up with the idea, and uh, yes, your wisdom is greatly appreciated. Of course it is. I just wish I could get communicated to people rather than in this discursive and digressive list of facts that nobody really seems to care about. Although they would help them actually understand what Benson was trying to do. Yeah, that was a, that was interesting. I've never uh, the full disclosure. I haven't read either of the books, but uh, it was very interesting what you did on the the uh, what for the last one. The Lord of the World. Lord of the World. Yes. Yeah. I keep wanting Which, to say Lord of the Rings, but I'm going. <laughs> <laughs> Two different genres, I think, and, and the authors are trying to do different things. Smidgen, yeah, smidgen different. That's an easy bit. Yes. But both are Catholic, so you know, that's close enough for government work, you know. Uh, but what, I, I don't know if it upset Benson, if that's the right word, but he was writing... In, in an established science fiction genre, the future war novel, and he was satirizing the Edwardian England and the effect of the new things, socialism, modernism, and the new age, on society and taking them to what he considered a reductio ad absurdum that he thought could never possibly occur, although Privately, he was of the opinion that something big was going to happen in society and that he felt safe inside the Catholic Church. Like Fulton Sheen and Chesterton and some others, he believed that the institutional church was the safest place to be, that it was still standing firm against the new things. Uh, you may have different opinions as to what the direction the church has taken today, uh, but this was what he believed. And it appalled him that people took the novel from its beginning in 1907 as a work of prophecy instead of satire, which meant that they completely missed the problems that they could fix by concentrating on them and instead fixated on what they thought was this apocalyptic vision that was sure to come because Benson predicted it. Well, he pretty much tore his hair out, although they, of course they wore it pretty short then anyway, so you can't tell. Uh, he was practically tearing his hair out about this. So in response, he prepared what he called a counterblast to Lord of the World, and which came out in 1907, and the counterblast came out in 1911. And it was called The Dawn of All. 
And what he did, it was, it's very clever, which is not to, to downgrade it. I'm just saying that Benson was a very clever and intelligent writer. And sometimes you have to read his books a couple of times in order to really understand the point he was making. In the Lord of the in Lord of the World, he was taking all that the secularists and the modernists and the socialists considered good about the new things and showed how they could create a living hell on earth, the way Fulton Sheen said in his uh, a doctoral thesis. God and Intelligence and Modern Philosophy in Light of the Philosophy of St. Thomas Aquinas. Really snappy title that you know today by God and Intelligence, which nobody ever reads, by the way, although they should. Uh, if you really want to understand what Fulton Sheen was doing, you have to read his doctoral thesis and then read it another again a few more times so that you actually understand it. Uh, but in the dawn of all, Benson flipped that completely. What he did was take all the elements that the secularists, the socialists, and the modernists considered evil about organized religion and constructed a virtual utopia. So what you have is all the good that the Edwardians thought created a hell, and all everything that the Edwardians considered bad cre created a heaven. Although, of course, Benson was very careful to state that he never thought that such a situation could ever evolve and that the dawn of all was, contrary to what a lot of people think today, not a blueprint for an ideal society. It was a satire and a counterblast or something that you must read in juxtaposition with Lord of the World, which underscored, at least in Benson's mind, you know, the guy who actually wrote it, so you have to kind of take his intentions into consideration that this is what he meant. So you put the two mirror images up against each other and see what is it that Benson was really satirizing? What was his real point? And in The Lord of the World, the point was how all these things that people considered good for humanity could create a living hell Whereas all the, in the dawn of all, what Benson did was concentrate on the ordinary human person, not humanity as a whole, but the individual human person. Because one of the things that strikes you about the dawn of all is the fact that the characters are all so ordinary. It's, it, it's, it actually makes for a bad novel or uh, no, no, no a not good novel because it is a competent well-executed novel but it has certain flaws that we'll get to but that was not ben benson's intention was not to write a good novel but to counterpose something to lord of the world so that you have two halves of a whole two mirror image satires to make the same point or at least a similar point which was ultimately the pull point of, it's the two halves of Catholic social teaching. Catholic social teaching is based on the fundamental importance of each and every single human person, not the collective. But the other part of Catholic social teaching is to create the environment within which the individual human person, not humanity as a whole, 
every child, woman, and man can become the best that you can be, to borrow the U.S. Army slogan. Uh, every person should have the opportunity and means to become more fully human. And that's where the two halves of Catholic social teaching come together, which is you have the environment, the social part, and the human person, the individual part, come together in harmony to provide the best, you know, the best environment within which each human person can, you know, perfect him, him or herself and develop as a full, more fully as a human being to prepare for one's uh, uh, end. I was trying to, <laughs> to think of a better word than end, but it is your end is to be with God in heaven, at least from a Catholic point of view. Other faiths and philosophies may put this different, but they all have the same goal to become more fully what you are so that you are prepared for whatever end it is that you're preparing for, which is not the, you know, the glorification of humanity or the state, but your real purpose and meaning in life. Okay, that's your theology for the day. And philosophy, actually. Uh, so that when Benson wrote The Dawn of All, he did mean it as satire, as well as Lord of the World. There is a difference between satire and prophecy. Uh, there's a little bit of overlap, especially in the biblical type of prophecy, which is not a prediction of events, but a warning about what will happen if you don't change your ways. Satire sort of does that, but without really, you know, trying to predict what's going to happen. You have to carefully distinguish because they are two different things. Prophecy is uh, considered the inspired declaration of divine will and purpose or a prediction of something to come. The prediction is really not biblical. Although, of course, biblical prophecy often came to pass because people didn't heed the warnings of what was going to happen if they didn't shape up. Uh, satire is the use of humor, irony, exaggeration, or ridicule, usually ridicule, uh, to expose and criticize people's stupidity or vices, particularly in the context of contemporary politics and other topical issues. And that's what Benson was doing in both books. It's less obvious in... Uh, the dawn of all, because what you have is this clearly artificial utopia in which the Catholic Church is supreme in virtually the whole world. And all the things that made Edwardian England miserable have been corrected or purified. Uh, I, I won't go into the technology that Benson envisioned because even he knew it was completely unrealistic. He was simply using it as the vehicle to carry the satire. The same way, for instance, Jonathan Swift took uh, a Gulliver to weird places that couldn't possibly exist, like uh, the one that I can never pronounce, the land of the giants, bro did something or other. <laughs> Don't get me on that. He knew it didn't exist. He knew it was completely impossible that such creatures could even exist. Similarly, the, the people of Lilliput, they didn't exist, they couldn't exist, but by putting his uh, protagonist or hero 
into these situations, it made the satire more obvious without offending people, or at least too many people back in England, that he was satirizing. See, Thomas More, when he wrote Utopia, put the satire in a mythical land where the people were pretty much like Englishmen. Jonathan Swift did him one better by creating giants and midgets. Or little people, excuse me. I don't no, everybody like midgets is the one to go. We are not PC. Here we, we use midgets. We love midgets. <laughs> Some of them who have much more going for us than the rest of us. so-called normal people. Some of whom are rather rather abnormal, if you ask me. Uh, we won't get into that. We're here on talking about Robert Hugh Benson. Uh, the book that nobody knows, or actually few people know. And even if they know of it, they don't really know the book. Now, what is interesting about both Lord of the World and The Dawn of All is that Benson viewed them as comedies. Now, you're going to say, Lord of the World, a comedy. It is the one, it is the grimmest thing Benson wrote. Uh, but think of the old comedy of, you know, of the ancient Greeks, which was pretty much slapstick and, you know, what we think of today as comedy. But then the new comedy that came in with Aristophanes. Uh, a lot of people who would view, you know, an updated version or even the originals of the plays of Aristophanes and some of the later playwrights would say, this isn't a comedy. It's not even funny. Humor might not be the, uh, you know, obvious humor may not be the goal of the new comedy, you know, in the ancient Greek. And this was the way uh, Benson was viewing it. Satire is comedy. It may not be funny or humorous, but it is comedy in the sense of the new comedy, as I said, that came in with Aristophanes. I can't believe I'm actually using Aristophanes after I took it in world literature my senior year in high school. See, you do use this stuff, believe it or not. It isn't just dead white European males who talk about this. So even though the dawn of all is not funny in the modern stand-up comedian sense, it is comedy in the Greek sense, you know, true uh, drama, which can be tragedy or comedy. As I said, I never thought that this stuff would come in handy, but it does. And even algebra does, especially among those people who say that they never use it. Sure, they do. They just don't realize they're doing it. Now, and Benson tried to highlight this because shortly before he wrote The Dawn of All, he stressed the importance of humor. Maybe not ha-ha or rolling in the aisles or everybody's favorite insult on Facebook, LOL, you know, when you're sneering at somebody, trying to make fun of them when you don't understand what they're talking about. Uh, I have a whole collection of those directed at me, by the way. Uh, you stupid people, you don't understand me. It's like, what, what, what's the line from Plan 9 from Outer Space? Your stupid brains. <laughs> Although I, I hope I do better than Ed Wood ever did. Anyway, <laughs> cultural references for those of you who don't know. World's worst filmmaker, Ed Wood. Okay. <laughs> uh, anyway, Benson wrote in a letter, he says, <clears throat> 
Systems other than the Catholic faith seem to be built up to a large extent on a lack of the sense of humor. I wonder whether the sense of humor will ever be exalted in the church to the dignity of a virtue. It saves people from so much foolishness and heresy. Now, one of the things that strikes me, especially about socialists and also capitalists, as well as modernists, is they seem to be very lacking in humor. That's they are always so here. grim and serious. I mean, I see you laughing. Are you laughing at me? How dare you laugh at me when I'm being funny? We joke about that with trads. It's uh, we see. It's uh, I'm one, I will be one, but it's funny to say, but you, it's hard to find a joyful trad that laughs. I remember when we, my brother and I, took some, took some friends out for beer and pizza after mass, and the guy goes, "Wow, you're some weird trads," because we were having fun. You go to mass, you have fun afterwards. Well, I remember on one of the, the socialism, modernism, and new age videos. Uh, somebody says, I don't like all that joking you're doing. Yeah. This is serious. Yeah. You bet it's serious. That's why we have to laugh about it because we can't spend an hour and a half crying into our beer here. Yeah, you laugh or cry. But yeah, go around. You, you go around, smile. Have a. You're Catholic. That should be big joy. We just did a podcast on joy. You should be smiling. You should be happy. You should make yeah, a I joke. I saw that. And I wanted to watch it, but of course, some of us have to work for a living here. <laughs> <laughs> I have a, a friend of mine says, uh, and, I, and I did find the podcast link and send it to him. He says, why don't you also release your videos as a podcast? Well, they are because not everybody can sit down for an hour or so and watch this stuff, even though, of course, you should. But, uh, yeah, it's <laughs> nice to have the podcast going on in the background while you're doing the dishes, shooting pool or whatever it is you're doing. Yes. <laughs> I don't really care <laughs> as long as you listen to it. And rack up the numbers so that we look good you know <laughs> I, I want to hit one of those 12 million views that you know the dogs on skateboards get you know yeah it ain't happening <laughs> anyway benson considered humor important and believe it or not so did heinrich pesch now the third generation of uh solidarists and people who claim to be descended from heinrich pesch also seem to be ultra serious and never joke about anything. You know, there, there's nothing funny in any of this. It's dead serious, and we're going to eliminate all the people who disagree with us, especially those who do agree with us. Anyway, Pesh, uh, one of his students remembered him saying, he says, boys, never lose your sense of humor. Lack of humor almost always suggests that something is wrong with a person's religious life. Now, that was kind of a zinger from a fellow who everyone... I mean, he was a German professor. His books are five volumes long. I mean, when you have a book titled in five volumes, Lehrbuch von Nutzel Economy, and then you think in your eyeballs roll back and it says, where are we supposed to find the humor in that? Well, I don't know, but he said it was there. So it's like, believe it or not, when I read Joseph Schumpeter's History of Economic Analysis, I think it's 1,200 pages. And I'm sitting here reading this thing, and all of a sudden, I, I had to reread a section. I thought, wait a minute. He made a joke, and it's funny. How do you joke about economics, the dismal science? Well, he managed. And oh, it's like yesterday's, yesterday was the feast of uh, Blessed Miguel Pro in the new calendar, and he's basically, they call him the patron saint of practical jokers. 
Oh, yeah. He said, uh, you'll know when you get to heaven, you'll find him me- dancing a, a Mexican hat dance. Yeah. I mean, uh-huh. Who goes up when he's wanted by people that want to kill him, who go up and he dresses up, hey, you found that priest yet? And then walks off. Yeah. <laughs> one, one of the times uh, he made a pun on his name when they asked him, are you a priest? He says, well, no, you confused my name. And I, my Spanish isn't good enough to understand the pun. Uh, I, I understand it when I read it. But somehow they, they says, you confused my name with that of the word priest, and this is my name. And without telling a lie, yeah. he convinced them that he wasn't a priest, that they had just confused his name with the word for priest. So, <laughs> <laughs> he was quick. Yes. And of course, remember that his last words were Viva Cristo Rey. And we just celebrated in the new calendar, the Feast of Christ the King which I think he had a better understanding of than a lot of people today. I, but enough for that commercial. Uh, you, you can view my video on it. But uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, got to get back to where, where was I? Where was I? Okay. Anyway, uh, back to Benson writing uh, The Dawn of All as a counterblast to Lord of the World. Uh, and it was based on exactly the, the opposite assumptions of the, the earlier book, and uh, basically in Lord of the World, all that the secularists and the adherents of the new things of socialism, modernism, and the new age viewed as good brought about a hell and the end of the world, whereas in the dawn of all, everything that the secularists and her- adherents of the adherents, I can't talk anymore, adherents of the new things of socialism, modernism, and the new age viewed as evil about organized religion, especially the Catholic Church, I got into another argument this morning. Most people don't realize socialism didn't start as opposed to capitalism. In fact, some of the early capitalists were socialists. The chief and original target of socialism was the Catholic Church. And by extension, all the organized traditional type Christian bodies. It was only later when the capitalists didn't fork over the money that the socialists turned against them. In fact, there's not really all that much difference between capitalism and socialism. It's just who's in charge, whether the private rich or the state rich. It's who's controlling the money. Uh, I hate to oversimplify, especially since St. Paul told Timothy, love of money is the root of all evil, but start digging and you'll find money at the heart of a lot of these problems. They don't use it right. They don't understand it. And that's your binary economics lecture for the day. (laughs) Anyway, to get back to Benson. Uh, Benson did not consider either Lord of the World Prophecy or especially the dawn of all the blueprint for an e, uh, for ideal society. In fact, as his biographer, his first official biographer, C.C. Martindale, who was a Jesuit, whatever that meant, uh, I think he may have later got a little weird later, but I'm not sure. I may be confusing him with somebody else. With the Jesuits these days, you never know. Uh, so Benson wrote often and emphatically that he did not for a moment expect the pictured solution to realize itself, and that he even hoped it would not. I mean, frankly, I've read The Dawn of All a couple of times. It seems a pleasant society, but I sure as heck wouldn't want to live there. I just, I just wouldn't. Uh, neither science nor the state nor religion would ever, he was convinced, 
find themselves in such mutual relations as he had invented. And he did invent them. He was absolutely fascinated with science fiction. Uh, he thought H.G. Wells' futuristic romances were, were great. The ideas behind them, he thought, were terrible. But the stories as stories and the technology described, he thought were great. To overuse the word great, which is probably great. Uh, anyway, the message of the dawn of all, and I don't want to give any spoilers because thin as the plot is, it's still a plot. And it's one of the few books where Benson did not put the work into the plot that he usually did. Clearly, the book was intended to carry the satire. The plot itself was not satiric. In Lord of the World, the plot was definitely satiric. But in The Dawn of All, it's just kind of there. And it does help underscore the point of that the ordinary person is important, but frankly, ordinary people living ordinary lives in an ordinary world, that's not much of a plot. Do, do you remember in, uh, I think it was the last battle, the, the, last, the, the seventh book of the, of the Narnia series, where C.S. Lewis says that centuries went by in Narnia where nothing happened, basically people just living out decent, good lives uh, until the very end when the last king of Narnia had the last battle in Armageddon and everything else. But there was when there's nothing to write about, why write about it? It's everyday life is nothing exciting. If you ever want to see a boring TV show, have a one of these reality shows about real life, not about weird people doing weird things locked up in a house, but every, people just doing ordinary things. Thornton Wilder tried this in, uh, I think it was Our Town, uh, and he was only able to carry it off by putting it inside a very strange situation of somebody coming back to life for one day and showing how, you know, people weren't appreciating the ordinariness of everyday life. Uh, you never thought all that literature you learned in high school would pay off, did you? No, it actually means something. Uh, now, the message in the dawn of all, and as I said, I'm not going to get into the plot because that would give what little there is away. Uh, the, the message is not that the world will be perfect when the Catholic Church is triumphant, but that all will be well. Not perfect, but well when the most ordinary of human beings can become most truly themselves in a social order that prepares them for their final end, which is the point I opened up this video with. And it's obvious I'm reading from my script here, but that's okay uh, for me. Uh, in Catholic belief, this is to be with God in heaven, not to create the socialist modernist kingdom of God on earth that so many seem to think is the goal of Catholic social teaching or even of political activity. No, political activity, you know, life in the polis, strictly speaking, is to keep order in society so that people can lead their own lives, not so that the state can direct everything and care for everybody. Why would you want to make people permanent dependents of the state through something like the universal basic income? Do you realize that that would make people permanent dependents of the state? 
And do you know what the legal definition of a slave is? A permanent dependent. We're looking at you, Klaus Schwab. That's it. That's in his book, COVID-19 and the uh, Great Reset. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, I, I make no comments on modern politics. <laughs> I may disagree with you. You'll never find out until you get the electric jolt across the, the wires. Or, <laughs> anyway, the effectiveness of the dawn of all doesn't rely on the plot per se. As I've stressed before, the plot is just kind of there. He needed a plot to hang all this satire on. Uh, but it's on the characters, and this is where the problem comes in from a, from a novel or fiction point of view, most of whom are astonishingly ordinary, which, as I said, is really boring when you're talking about fiction. Uh, you know, classic fictional technique is have an extraordinary person in an ordinary situation or have an ordinary person in an extraordinary situation. Both make for very effective, you know, drama or comedy in the modern sense. Uh, but to have an extraordinary person in an extraordinary situation, you have to stretch, the, the reader has to stretch too much. Or to have an ordinary person in an ordinary situation, as I said, is kind of boring. Because who wants to just watch people who are doing what you're doing? Go look in the mirror. Then you can be bored with yourself. Unless, of course, you get inspired to start improving yourself and working on yourself, which maybe you should. Or actually, definitely you should. But that's not my point today. Uh, even the protagonist in The Dawn of All, who might otherwise have inserted the extraordinary into the story, has no memory. He, he wakes up, you know, after he thinks he's dying in 1910 and work, wakes up in 1973, I think. And he finds himself... On a, on a platform is who am I and what am I doing here? So what was extraordinary, anything that might have been extraordinary about him is wiped out at the very beginning of the novel. He's just there to carry you through the, what story there is. And it's basically just a bunch of series of incidents, just, you know, making the points that Benson was trying to make. Dressed up in futuristic technology, and a rather flimsy plot, as I said, but it's, it's a very difficult novel to get into as a novel. If you didn't like Benson and weren't aware of the point he's making, you could very easily be bored with this novel, which is probably why a lot of people haven't bothered to read it or even have heard of it. But it is, contrary to my rather boring dissertation on it, it is well worth reading if you understand Benson's point. And what is really strange, especially from a Catholic point of view, is that the most interesting character, even the most attractive character, possibly one of the most attractive in all of Benson's fiction, is an unrepentant heretic who has been condemned to death for the civil crime of heresy, which Benson viewed that specific incident uh, he did not agree with a, making the heresy a civil crime and especially not sentencing somebody to death for it. He was making a point, a very satiric point with that, uh, which you can decide for yourself because I'm trying to get through the rest of this presentation. Uh, the fact is that 
I think the re this is my personal opinion. I think that Benson put so much work into making the heretic attractive was because he did disagree with what he was doing to him. And he didn't want the reader to feel sorry for him, but he also didn't want the reader to condemn him. It, it's a very strange element in the book. And the best dialogue in the book comes when the protagonist, the fellow who has lost his memory, is trying to understand, one, why the heretic simply won't recant, and why he doesn't seem bothered by the fact that he's going to be executed. Very strange situation, especially if you don't know, you know, the whole idea, for instance, behind excommunication. So many people, especially today, view excommunication as a punishment. No, it's a remedy. You're trying to get people to come back to the church, back to the faith, not punish them for doing something wrong. And I think this is pervasive in a lot, even of the, of the Catholic hierarchy today. They view people who disagree with them or who are strained from the fold as they see it as being evil or villainous. They won't talk to them. They won't dialogue with them. And of course, other people are saying, you should be excommunicated. But if you're viewing excommunication as a punishment, then it won't be effective, will it? Excommunication is not a punishment. It's medicine to try to bring people back. You cut someone off. You excommunicate them to bring them to a sense that what they're doing is wrong. A gigantic boot up your butt. Yeah. Tough love in the, in the best sense. So, of course, nobody's using it right. Uh, and then, of course, it kind of falls to pieces when you have people who do something that results in automatic excommunication because then it really isn't driven home to them. They can still argue with themselves that, oh, it's okay because I believe it to be okay. Well, one, do you really believe it or is it just convenient for you? And just because you think it's okay doesn't mean it is. You really do have to measure against certain absolute standards of morality and, rea and reality. As, you know, the, the St. Thomas More character says in Adrian Bolt's A Man for All Seasons, uh, when, when the Roper character says, you know, this isn't right, uh, no, 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 this isn't legal, it's moral, and, or, or, so, or something like that. It was a very stupid thing to say because More instantly says, oh, I understand you now. You don't think that morality is real. That, but it's it's the most uh, no 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 it's this isn't practical it's moral and more jumps on that instantly he says oh I understand you now but morality is the most practical thing there is it's the only way you hold on to yourself and this is why Adrian Bolt who said he was not even a Christian in a meaningful sense could understand and write a great Catholic play because he understood that St. Thomas More held on to the core of what he was. He was being extremely practical in being moral because that's what he was. He had to hold fast to these moral absolutes, which, to segue back to Benson, was what the people in the dawn of all were trying to do. Now, 
He knew that the situation was fantastic and he never wanted to see it. But it's the interaction of the people within that society, within that world, especially the heretic. The heretic was being absolutely true to what he believed to be the right thing. He knew it disagreed with the rest of society. He knew it disagreed with the church. But he believed it. And to be honest, he had to submit to, you know, the civil crime, being convicted of the civil crime of heresy and being put to death. Now, of course, Benson knew darned well that you're not going to get that in a real heretic. Most heretics, if not all of them, know that somewhere deep inside what they're saying isn't right. The heretic in the dawn of all is clearly an artificial character. Nobody was ever really like that. Nobody except possibly an obvious saint could meet death with such calmness and, you know, equanimity. But now with Benson, he knew that the heretic he created was a completely artificial character. No heretic, in fact, few Christians, Orthodox, could meet death that calmly. But what he wanted to show was that if you act in accordance with the principles that you truly, deeply, and sincerely believe, you can meet death that calmly. This is what the Christian should strive for. But to make the point, he puts, it in the, he puts these feelings into a heretic, someone who is being put to death for the crime of heresy, with which, as I said, Benson clearly did not agree with, but he wanted to make his satiric point. And if you read the book from that uh, perspective, Benson will have made his point. Uh, if, however, you view it as Benson's apologia for you know burning heretics at the stake, then he's failed. That was not his point. Uh, now, there are a few flaws in the Dawn of All. I've already hinted at some of them. Now, the point, of course, is that the Dawn of All is the importance of the human person, the dignity of the ordinary human person. He had made this point earlier in his book, The Religion of the Plain Man, in which he pointed out that the man in the street must have some importance to Jesus because, after all, he came to save his soul. And I think that he made the point fictionally much better later in the novel that I mentioned in the previous video, An Average Man. But uh, he also put it into the dawn of all as a counterblast to the Lord of the world in which humanity, not the individual human person, was turned into a virtual god. But humanity, uh, in a sense, when we consider God, God does not consider humanity as humanity. God's knowledge is perfect about every single human being, in fact, about every single thing that exists. He doesn't need to abstract and form an idea of humanity, the collective. That doesn't mean anything to God. It means a lot to us because 
abstraction is a crutch we use to try to grasp reality. God doesn't have to create abstractions about reality because he knows reality inside out, upside down, and backwards. He made it. He created it. He is, after all, God. I mean, you know, what a concept. Uh, you mean an omnipotent being, an omniscient, who actually is omnipotent and omniscient? Wow. Don't try to understand it, just accept it. Now, what that means, however, for, for Benson's purposes, is that the importance of the average man, the ordinary person, is paramount. And I just managed to get completely lost in my notes here. Uh, but uh, this is what happens when I get distracted by talking about you. <laughs> oh, yeah, flaws in the book, not in me. I said, we won't get into the flaws in me. We don't have that much time. Uh, the fact is that to Benson, society was made for man, not man for society. The problem with the Lord of the World was that uh, the whole society was constructed on the assumption that man was made for society. And in the dawn of all, he constructed a possible society with lots of flaws in it that uh, in which society was made for man. And the, 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 the character of the heretic underscores this. But most important of all, the person of the Pope in the dawn of all, who is depicted as the most ordinary person you could possibly find. There are several scenes in the book which really underscore the fact that this man who happens to be Pope is kind of nothing. But when it comes time for him to act as Pope, then he becomes extraordinary. But as a human being, He's just as ordinary as the rest of us. I'm not sure how well Benson conveys that because, as I said, The Dawn of All is not the best written of his books. But when you're writing about ordinary people, it that your, even your writing tends to get ordinary until he finally manages to break through with an extraordinary situation that I won't describe because I don't want to spoil what little plot there is for you. <laughs> In any event... Society must be constructed in such a way that it is that to become more fully human is in within the reach of everyone, and you, so that you don't have to rely on the changes in human nature or reality that socialism, modernism, and the new age depend upon. Now, what happened in Lord of the World was the creation of the kingdom of God on earth with that as an end in itself. But what Pius XI called for was the reign of Christ the King. Of course, this was, uh, let's see, 1911, 1920? Yeah, about 10 years after Benson wrote Lord of the World, uh, excuse me, The Dawn of All. And, you know, it's not outside the realm of possibility that Pius XI read that book. He read everything. He read... He would spend, even after he was elected to the papacy, he would spend hours every night in his library, sometimes up till midnight, reading the papers, reading the latest novels, to keep his finger on the pulse of what was going on in the world. He wasn't isolating himself. 
fact, he was the he was the Pope who ended, you know, the status of the Pope as the prisoner of the Vatican by signing the Lateran Treaty with Mussolini. You know, he knew that the church had to come into the world on its own terms, not the world's terms, but the church's terms. You don't want the church to conform to the world. You want the world to conform to the church. Unfortunately, what has happened is that many people misunderstood the Second Vatican Council as trying to conform the church to the world instead of trying to kickstart the program by means of which the world would be conformed to the church. But we went over that in another video. <laughs> uh, now, what Pius XI called the reign of Christ the King was, in a very broad sense, what Benson tried to do with the dawn of all show a society which would prepare people for their final end. And within certain limits, he did it brilliantly. Benson, that is. Of course, Pius XI did it even more brilliantly, but uh, he had the advantage of it. Uh, he was, after all, Pope. And of course, everything the Pope says is absolutely infallible in every way, shape, or form, isn't it? <laughs> anyway... To get, I think I, yeah, I skipped over the, uh, the flaws in the dawn of all. We can cover those pretty quickly. Uh, as I said, the most attractive character in the book is the heretic. Well, that kind of sets a bad example if you're reading that as straight fiction. You don't want your most attractive character to be someone who disagrees with everything you say. Uh, and, you know, the the case that he made for civil, Benson made for civil prosecution of heresy is what is the absolute weakest one in any of his novels. It's because he didn't agree with it, but he needed it for, to make his point. Uh, he was completely detached from everything. Uh, and as I said, the heretic's charity and reason, it didn't match the fact that he was a heretic. It, he's a strange character. You like him, but you think, you know, somebody like that just doesn't exist. Now, the, the whole, the, probably the worst flaw from a, from a dramatic point of view is that the plot is subordinate to the situation, if that makes sense. Uh, Benson just let his fascination with technology go wild. And the plot really doesn't make sense if you stop to think about it but then if you stop to think about it how many plots in a lot of tv shows and movies today really make sense especially when you start picking them apart or now and how much political policy these days makes sense when you realize that they're putting something in like keynesian economics which is based on contradictions so you can enjoy the dawn of all and just sort of, you know, glide over the plot inconsistencies, especially when you get to the end. Uh, when the guy goes back to 1910 and wakes up. Uh, I won't spoil that for you. But if you've ever read Evelyn Waugh's short story, uh, what was the title of it? Uh, Out of Depth. I have to keep notes on these things. You can pretty much guess what's going to happen. Uh, because... Evelyn Waugh's short story was clearly based on the dawn of all, just as Evelyn Waugh's Love Among the Ruins was based on Lord of the World. And of course, gave them his own unique twist uh, 
I wasn't going to talk about this, but Out of Depth is a terrific short story. A Londoner in the 1930s is projected 500 years into the future, and London is a is a is a village that sounds like something out of Africa, where you've got 50 or so huts on the banks of the Thames River, and these degraded natives who used to be, you know, God is an Englishman sort of, they make their living digging up artifacts for the civilized people from Africa who come in, bringing missionaries. And the weird part is that the missionaries are Dominicans. So instead of having white men dressed in black going to convert Africans, you, Evelyn Waugh had black men dressed in white coming to convert Europeans. <laughs> it's just one of the weird things in that short story. Uh, now, but to conclude, you know I had to do it one, one of these times. Uh, the message in the dawn of all is that collectivism isn't the isn't what matters. The abstraction of humanity is not what matters. It's not individualism either, which is kind of collectivism dressed up because they're both abstractions. Uh, individualism, only the abstraction of an elite matters. Collectivism, only the abstraction of humanity matters. To God, only the human person matters. Personalism, in which every single human person matters, is the point of the dawn of all, even though Benson didn't use the word personalism. And the human person matters to God, not the collective. And it's the human person who matters in the dawn of all, as it should to us.